Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this summer is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages everyone to come out and experience state parks during its centennial, the 100th anniversary of the state park system, especially through service projects listed online at stateparks.oregon.gov. It's a way to enjoy the parks you love while doing activities like cleaning up trails and restoring wetlands. All right, in today's episode, we're checking in on some of the biggest stories of the summer so far including wildfire season, how to score a campground on the coast, and the reopening of 180,000 acres of iconic forest that's been closed since the Labor Day fires. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Well, today I'm going to hit on a handful of topics that have become the biggest stories of Oregon so far this summer. Now, this is the busiest time of year to be an outdoors reporter, and this year has been no exception. We've had a spate of new wildfires sparked by lightning storms and extreme heat, and we're going to talk about the biggest fires, what might be at risk, including Waldo Lake, the Diamond Peak Wilderness, and right down on the California border. This past week also marked a huge moment and one I've been waiting for for a really long time, and that was the reopening of a massive swath of public land that burned in the Labor Day fires, and that's going to include places like Opal Creek Wilderness, Northern Mount Jefferson Wilderness, the Brighton Bush River Corridor, and the Detroit area. But it happened in a really odd and frankly confusing way, so I'm going to do my best to kind of unpack and clarify what's going on there. Finally, I'm going to talk permits both old and new, and about historic crowds on the Oregon coast and how to score a campsite if you're headed out to the beach or the forest, along with another Oregon public broadcasting interview. So this is going to be a little bit of a newsy podcast, but we're going to finish it off with a conversation that is all about fun, and it is the best backpacking trips in the magical places of Southern Oregon and extreme Northern California, a place that's been in the news for kind of negative reasons lately, but is truly one of the last best places, so stick around for that on the back end of the podcast. Let's get to it. All right, well, we're going to start off with the current wildfire situation. Now, last week, wildfire season really kicked into gear with an extended heat wave. It actually turned out to be one of Oregon's longest stretches of hot weather in recorded history. Portland set a record for most days in a row above 95 degrees, and it was just generally really hot for a really long time across the entire state. And the heat basically dried up the bank account of moisture that we'd built up with the cool and wet spring and early summer. 
So you saw fire danger kind of go from like low to, to medium to high and extreme in a lot of parts of the state. And at this point, we're starting to see campfire bans come into effect. So if you're headed out camping, make sure to check out those rules before you head out. But in addition to the heat, we also had the arrival of thunderstorms and lightning strikes. Now, believe it or not, these midsummer thunderstorms, and we're going to have a lot of them this year, are fueled by monsoons way down in Arizona. So all the moisture from down in the southwest that gets churned up in the ocean actually migrates northward and often turns into these thunderstorms when it reaches northern California and southern Oregon, and then it can kind of move up the spine of the Cascades. So that's how a majority of Oregon's biggest wildfires actually ignite. This year is a very active monsoon season, so we're going to see a lot of these thunderstorms. Over the last week, Oregon got 5,800 lightning strikes total in about five days, and that ignited a number of the small fires that we're now seeing. At this point, there's two wildfire clusters that are going to have the biggest impact short-term and probably long-term, and those are the Cedar Creek Fire near Waldo Lake and the Windigo Potter Fires between Diamond Peak and Mount Thielson. Right now, both of those fire clusters, so again, that's the Cedar Creek Fire and the Windigo Potter Fire, right now they're what I'd call small to medium-sized, right around a thousand acres, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, and they're not threatening any towns or cities, but they have brought large recreation closures, which is a real bummer because we're entering the best time for visiting a lot of these places around Willamette Pass, you know, down south towards the North Umpqua area. I'm not going to list all of the closures in place because I've written stories that break it down with maps and everything, but a few of the major spots include the Diamond Peak Wilderness, the Waldo Lake Wilderness, Summit Lake, parts of Crescent Lake, and then down to Mount Thielson. And look, you know, it, it sucks. And hopefully these fires stay small to medium-sized and the closures are lifted by late August or September. But the reality is these fires are definitely established. They're in remote areas that are hard to fight. So the Forest Service often keeps these recreation closures in place for longer than you might expect, mainly so their fire crews don't have to deal with people coming in and out and kind of getting in the way. You know, these closures are definitely frustrating for me personally, and it often seems like they're excessive, but the reality is sometimes things go sideways. In 2020, there was a closure that I just hated. It was there for weeks in the Opal Creek area due to this really small fire that was known as the Beachy Creek Fire. And yeah, I think a lot of people know how that went. The fire blew up, it incinerated that area, and it was really bad, but it would have been a hundred times worse if the area was full of people hiking and camping. So the reality is these closures are very much weighted on the side of better safe than sorry. Okay, so that's the Oregon fires uh, to keep in mind. And we're always updating what's going on at statesmanjournal.com. So you can check in there, but that's kind of a, a snapshot of what's going on in Oregon. Right now we're going to talk with our intrepid outdoors intern, Skyla Patton. She's been covering and writing about this year's biggest fire, which is just south of the Oregon-California state line. Skyla is reporting to us from her home of Cave Junction, where she joins us today. Hey, Skyla. Hey, Zach. 
glad to be on the podcast again and really fun to be reporting from my stomping grounds. So, Skyla, the McKinney fire started off really fast. It burned a lot of acres. It kind of grabbed everyone's attention. It even took four lives down in the town of Klamath River. So what can you tell us about McKinney, Alex, and the Yeti fires are now that are burning just south of the border? Yeah, so we have had the weird luxury in Oregon so far of kind of observing the wildfires from a distance, at least in southwest Oregon. But the McKinney fire is the big burn that a lot of people kind of statewide are watching right now, not only because of the proximity to some communities like Scott Bar and Wairika, or even Klamath River, which unfortunately has already lost a lot to the McKinney fire, like you mentioned, but also because it's currently the largest wildfire in the state of California as well. So there's a lot of eyes on that. The fire, like you mentioned, is just south of the border of Oregon and California. I'm actually reporting from my parents' house. We're in O'Brien, so we're like a stone's throw away from that border, which is a trip. Um, It's really been burning in that upper right-hand corner of the Klamath National Forest. And as of this podcast recording, the McKinney Fire is just shy of reaching 60,000 acres that it has burned thus far. It's about 10% contained, and they have a ton of people down there working on the McKinney Fire. It's actually just over 2,000 people that are assigned to the McKinney Fire alone right now. If you move a little further west, the Alex Fire and then another couple small groups that they're actually calling the Yeti Complex Fires have also put a pretty good dent into the landscape of the forest in that area so far, which is much closer to areas like Happy Camp, which we know are not unfamiliar with the threat of wildfire. Collectively, those two have burned over 6,500 acres and have right around 800 personnel working on containment as of this recording, which is uh, 0% for the Yeti complex, but a much nicer 20% containment for the Alex fire. Yeah, so Skyla, you know, you, you mentioned the size of the fire, what it's done so far, but where it's burning is a really interesting place. So you wrote a piece for uh, the Reading newspaper down there about the biodiversity of the Klamath area, the Klamath National Forest. I always think of it as the Klamath-Siskiyou Mountains, just because those two mountains are kind of almost interchangeable and crash into each other. There are these really old, interesting range out there that's pretty unique to Oregon. So, Skylet, you know, what's unique about it in your reporting, and what's at risk uh, because of this fire? Yeah, you know, there's always risk and reward when it comes to wildfire burning in these forests. Um, You know, not everything that happens as a result of wildfire is negative, but there is a lot that is put up at risk at the same time. The Klamath National Forest is super, super unique, not only because it's one of those rare biodiverse areas where you can literally go from one mountainside to the other. You know, it can go from a really lush green landscape to kind of a high desert feel, or you could go from a kind of river canyon and then you walk over the top and it just seems like a completely different planet. But also because there are a few unique species in that area that are actually endemic to the landscape. So this is a new word for me. Endemic is essentially the inability for a species to grow or live in any other bioregion. So you're not going to find those species anywhere else besides these mountains. Uh, Some of these include the brewer spruce. It's a really, really beautiful tree. It's actually a species of weeping spruce that have these beautiful green needles that kind of drip down towards the ground with the pine cones. There's also a few type of amphibians that only exist over there, like the Siskiyou or Scott Bar salamanders, which I used to love finding in the woods as a kid. 
I got a bunch of this information from Michael Kaufman, who is a really, really super helpful historian and kind of ecologist of that area. Um, and I am happy to report that both uh, Michael and I felt that the salamanders would, in fact, be fine as a result of the fire because they're able to burrow down. So we don't have to lose sleep over the salamanders. Yeah, I mean, the the part of the Klamath, and this is one thing that I remember, I but it has one of the most, one of the richest collections of conifers in particular in the United States or California, but there's a lot of trees down there, a lot of different species of trees down there, right? Yeah, if I understand correctly, it's one of the most biodiverse regions in terms of both flora and fauna. It just is really unique in terms of the different kinds of things that can grow and reproduce down there, which if you're even a little bit familiar with the area is kind of crazy in and of itself. Zach, you and I were just having a conversation about kind of the soil type and what it looks like over in these spaces. And Sometimes, depending on where you are, you wouldn't think that you're in a place that just has this really rich, unique and diverse, you know, uh, collection of plants and animals. But even if they're a little bit hidden, they are out there. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to take it just a quick swing as like an amateur geologist from what I've understood living down there and reporting about that area. I think a lot of the biodiversity is due to the age of the Klamath Siskiyous. They're, they're a really old mountain range compared to the Cascades, millions of years old. Um, they kind of got pushed up from the ocean crust. They run, you know, instead of north to south, they run east to west, which is which is a lot different. So I think when you have this really ancient mountain range, a lot of plants have had the opportunity to evolve, to find niches over the years. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, but again, you know, if there's a botanist or geologist out there who's going to fact check me, then, uh, you know, bring it on. You know, one of the areas that I got to know uh, pretty well when I lived down in Southern Oregon was that happy camp that we talked about a little bit before. And that's the one that's most threatened, I think, by this complex of fires right now. It's this really funky timber town that's almost literally right on top of the border it's really isolated like one of the like the joke that the residents would tell when i was down there is they would say back in the day when the tax collector would come from california they'd claim to be a town in oregon and then when the oregon tax collector came they'd be like nope this is california what are you talking about go home <laughs> and so you know they never had to pay taxes which also fits with the vibe of that town but it is pretty rich in outdoor recreation uh, it's right along this really beautiful stretch of the Klamath River. Uh, it's surrounded by wilderness, the Siskiyou Wilderness, the Marble Mountain Wilderness, the Red Buttes Wilderness. I mean, there's wilderness on all sides. And every year, Happy Camp is a Bigfoot festival uh, that I've actually gone down to and, and attended. And they go all out for the Bigfoot Festival because, honestly, like... It's like a it's like a, a pride thing because that area is so wild, so remote that if Bigfoot does exist, I mean, I think he's a hundred percent somewhere between Cave Junction and Happy Camp, like in that in that nexus, because there aren't many places in the lower forty eight that are more isolated. So any Skyla, any Bigfoot sightings um, in your neck of the wood? I mean, how do you feel about the Bigfoot mist down there? Oh my gosh. Uh, I attended a summer camp when I was younger and our, the theme of the groups was you were supposed to pick an animal. So you got the bees, you got the whales. My group was the Bigfoot group. So uh, <laughs> it's definitely a theme that we grow up with a lot in Cave Junction. I definitely craned my neck looking out the window most of my childhood, really hoping that I was going to be the one that would find him. Um, I'm pretty certain he's out there and maybe he just doesn't want to be bothered. Um, but one thing I do want to say actually about the community of Happy Camp that I just think is really impressive and something that kind of shines through during wildfire season with Southern Oregon communities in general. 
Um, Happy Camp is, you know, no stranger to wildfire. Uh, it took a pretty hard hit with the Slater fire a couple summers ago, um, you know, and, and struggled with wildfire prior to that. What's really, really unique to me and impressive about these communities is uh, how quickly they kind of turn that switch on and just become really, really efficient and empathetic in terms of the community supporting each other during these wildfire seasons. Uh, I was just spending some time out in Tequilma over by the Treehouse Resort and kind of in that same general vicinity where you can kind of decide to maybe spend some time at Tequilma or head up towards Happy Camp in the snow park. And, you know, we've, like I mentioned, have the luxury of the air quality has been pretty good up here in Southern Oregon by Cave Junction, kind of O'Brien area. None of us have evacuation orders yet, but it's kind of interesting that there's just that sense in the air that everybody's ready to go. You know, people are talking about evacuations. People are talking about those communities in Northern California that are currently suffering and thinking about how they can extend that help down there. And I just think it's really impressive how Oregon communities and Oregon people almost are able to kind of gather that sense of community and band together in the face of something as scary as wildfire. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's like an, uh, almost an official season in Southern Oregon, mm -hmm. especially that is not, you know, it's not summer, it's wildfire season. And there's almost like a distinction between the two, just because fires have become so common, uh, down in that neck of the woods. So we'll see what happens with those Northern California fires. Um, in the last, last half of this show, uh, the plan is to include an interview I recorded last year about the best backpacking spots in this area. So we, it talks a lot about the marbles, uh, the Marble Mountain Wilderness, the the Siskiyou, uh, the Red Buttes, and that this area a little bit more. So maybe keep it in your mind. Um, this might not be the perfect time to go down there for a backpacking trip, but keep it in your head. It's a, it's a unique region, and uh, that'll provide you with some good ideas. Okay, so to sum up this wildfire section, I'm going to do something that I hate to do, and that's offering borderline possibly good news. So I talked to a fire meteorologist yesterday. And he said that he was actually optimistic about fire season in Oregon this August because they're forecasting some pretty wet thunderstorms to come through Northern California and Oregon next week. So remember those monsoon-driven thunderstorms that I talked about earlier? We're supposed to get some more next week, but apparently they're going to come with a decent amount of precipitation. Uh, this meteorologist is a source who has been predicting wildfire weather for a long time. He's typically right, in my experience. Uh, but these thunderstorms are a double-edged sword. They ignite most of the fires with that lightning, but they can also put them out and a lot of other fires out when they come with a lot of rain. And in fact, the McKinney fire definitely slowed down and hasn't exploded into the type of mega fire we've seen recently in, uh, in Northern California, in part because it did get hit with some pretty wet thunderstorms, got a decent amount of rain. So we'll wait and see, but he is at least cautiously optimistic, so I guess I am too. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our first sponsors. But when we return, we're going to touch on a massive swath of forests, trails, and campgrounds that just reopened for the first time in two years. So stay with us. I'm Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. 
It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. All right, well, up next, I wanted to touch on a big moment that people who love Oregon's outdoors have been waiting for for a long time, and that is the reopening of roughly 180,000 acres of public land that's been closed since the 2020 Labor Day fires. So last week, Willamette National Forest said it was revising the closure orders for the Beachy Creek, Lion's Head, and Holiday Farm fires, which means that big-name places like Opal Creek, Jefferson Park, the Brighton Bush River Corridor, and spots around Detroit Lake are open for the first time in two years. Now, these are places that people love. But the thing is, the Forest Service did it in this really odd way. What they've done is basically opened almost all of the land and the trails in the wilderness areas, but they've kept closed a lot of the main access roads and the Pacific Crest Trail, which really complicates the situation, especially in the backcountry. So first, I'm going to hit on the positive side. Now, there's a bunch of great places east of Salem that you can go now. First and foremost, the Brighton Bush Corridor on Road 46 north of Detroit. There are great campgrounds like Humbug Campground, Fox Creek that are now open, really for the first time actually since the pandemic started, if you can believe it. And then there are also excellent dispersed campsites along the river and the road that have opened up. Uh, you could jump in there's really great swimming holes very cold water but you can check that out and then about 11 miles up that road road 46 there's a blockade and you can park there and actually continue on bicycle so there's a lot of fun opportunities to maybe bike pack up to some dispersed campsites up there you know it's just it's the first time this has been open in a long time there are great spots out there it's been crowded in oregon's outdoors so this is a place that you know, you could really spread out into and have some outdoor adventures. You can also drive up to places that were blocked off but were not burned, and that's going to include places like Elk Lake, which is north of Detroit, or Gold Butte Lookout, which is normally a rental site. It's not going to be up for rental this year, but it's a beautiful view at the top. It's a fun hike, and so you can look around at the wildfire scar and see all of it, how close it came to the lookout and everything like that. It's just kind of a cool spot to check out. Okay, so now on to the more frustrating stuff. So while the Opal Creek Wilderness and Northern Mount Jeff Wilderness are technically open, trying to get into the backcountry there is going to be pretty difficult at first. That's because the main roads to get to them are still closed, while the forest says it's doing hazard tree removal work. So how is this going to play out? I'll give you an example. Take the Opal Creek Wilderness. Now, it is 100% open. But the North Fork Road that accesses that just about everyone uses to access that area is closed and gated, and that is not going to change this summer. So you're not going to be able to get into the Opal Creek Wilderness the, the way you normally would. So you kind of have to, if you want to do this, you have to find a back way in there, essentially. If you want to get into Opal Creek, you'd probably have to drive up to Elk Lake and take the Battle Axe Trail to try to get over, which gonna, is going to include some pretty difficult very difficult bushwhacking. 
the same is true for the northern Mount Jefferson wilderness, including Jefferson Park. All the trailheads and roads are closed to that northern part of the wilderness, so you'd have to go in from the south, navigate cross-country, you know, up to get in there. And for now, you'll have to do it without using the Pacific Crest Trail, which is closed until August. And I got to mention, going cross-country in burned areas is going to be really difficult, really dangerous. So you better know, you better know what you're doing uh, before you tr- give this a shot. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying it's going to be tricky. The government agencies are kind of advising against it. It's just a really confusing way to do this reopening. And I think it's kind of best summed up by Andy Stahl, who I quoted in a story writing about this reopening. He's been on the podcast before, and he's been pushing the Forest Service to lift these closures. And his quote, his quote in my story was this. He said, quote, what they're basically saying is that, yes, you can visit the castle, but you first have to swim across a moat filled with crocodiles to reach it. So there's been some frustration with the way the Forest Service has done this. So overall, look, I mean, I'm glad that a lot of these places have reopened, but it's nowhere close to an everything is back to normal type of scenario. That's not going to happen. This is going to take a while. It's going to be an incremental return to what we, we consider normal in this area. Okay, up next on our news hits, we've got some updated information about new and old permits required to get into Oregon's wildest places. So on the new front, Mount Hood National Forest announced that they are planning to require permits to climb to the mountain summit beginning potentially in 2023. So that would be next year if you want to climb to Mount Hood's summit. The proposal would be to charge $20 per person or $100 for the year. And this permit would only be needed to go above 9,500 feet. So really going up to the summit, you wouldn't need this to be on the Timberline Trail or at any other trails around Mount Hood. There would also be an unlimited number of permits. So it wouldn't limit the number of people that were trying to climb it. The Forest Service just says the money would go towards hiring new climbing rangers to help with safety and basically forcing people to pay more attention to safety because there's been a big uptick in accidents on Mount Hood, a lot more people heading out there in pretty ill-prepared ways, and the Forest Service is trying to come up with a way to remedy that. So right now, in fact, in fact, all this summer, they're going to be taking public comments and they want you to weigh in. Do you like this permit system? What has been your experience? What do you think might work better? Um, I wouldn't go with a yes or no kind of a thing. I would be as constructive about it as possible saying, this is my argument. This is what I think works best. And that makes the most effective public comments. But the hood permit isn't the only new one. Uh, There's also new permits that you'll need to enter Lava River Cave outside of Bend. This one does limit numbers. It's a timed entry permit system where basically, you know, you pay for a time when you can go in and park. And so, you know, if you want to go in at 10 a.m., you buy the 10 a.m. permit and there's X amount of them. It's the same idea as what's going on in the Columbia River Gorge's waterfall corridor this year. Like to get to go to see Multnomah Falls this summer, you've got to get a timed entry permit to get in through there. So, This is a lot of permits. You know, we're also on the second year of the permit system needed to enter the Mount Jefferson, Mount Washington, and Three Sisters Wilderness areas. Apparently that program is working a little bit better than last year. It's cutting down on on no-shows. 
But overall, permit systems have just become more and more common because it's the only proven way to control numbers as Oregon's population keeps growing and growing. All right, in our final news item, we're going to start with an interview that I did with Oregon Public Broadcasting earlier this year about Oregon's struggles with camping and specifically the lack of campsites available and why that is. Later, I'll come back with some updates on what's going on this year and some tips on some specific places you can actually find camping spots. Uh, so right now, I'm going to start with this. It's from April, and it's me with Weekend Edition's John Natiriani. In the Northwest, it's been another week of April showers. But despite all the soggy weather, it's also the time of year when the outdoor adventure season begins to kick into high gear. But if you're starting to think about planning your first camping trip of 2022, you're not alone. Competition for campsites and congestion in scenic areas has been growing steadily for the last several years, and that boom has only been intensified by two years of pandemic summers. So what can you expect once you head out into the great outdoors this year? To answer that, I'm joined by Zach Erness. He's the host of the Explore Oregon podcast and outdoors editor for the Statesman Journal. Hey, Zach. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So anecdotally, I think a lot of us have noticed how the pandemic has led to these bigger crowds and campgrounds and trails across the state. But what do the numbers say? What kind of demand for outdoor activities did we see last year? Yeah, last year saw a record number of people in Oregon's outdoors in terms of people visiting parks, hiking trails, uh, going camping. It was the highest overall that we've ever seen based on numbers that come from a variety of sources we look at, including Oregon State Parks, National Parks, and then anecdotally, which you're hearing from Rangers. So last year, definitely record setting. Oregon's seen a rising number of people in the outdoors for quite a while. I mean, going back you know, a decade at least as the population has grown. But like you said, the pandemic took it to a different level. People didn't have anything else to do except go outside for a long time. And even if things have inched back towards normal, uh, that hasn't changed. People are still going outside in crazy numbers, and nobody expects that to change in the coming summer. Yeah, and at this point, it's still early in the season, but there's already huge demand for campsites. What sort of competition are we seeing for reservations this year? Boy, it's it's intense, um, especially for well-known campgrounds and well-known places. And then even more so for stuff like yurts on the coast or, or cabins or even guided rafting trips. They're all just peak demand. You know, for campgrounds, the story I hear all the time is about people waking up in the early morning, logging onto their computer, and then a full six months before the date they want, they're basically racing other people uh, to get that perfect campsite. So the trick is to be right on your computer at 7 a.m. Like when the clock hits 7 a.m., people are there to click um, just so they can get that reservation. That's how intense the competition is. And the recent story, I referred to it as kind of campsite jeopardy uh, because it kind of all hinges on who can buzz. Everybody's clicking that button. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, what about off the beaten path? If a lot of these really high demand campgrounds have already been snapped up, where might people have the best chance of looking for reservations outside of those really choice spots? It depends on a lot of different factors. I mean, the, the two biggest, highest demand areas are Central Oregon around the Bend area, and then the Oregon coast, particularly on the northern half of the coast. So if you're going to one of those kind of places, you know, chances are you want to plan in advance. As far as if you're looking for 
places that are off the beaten path. There's a lot of national forest campgrounds. The trick that I do is, you know, I like to look at my big national forest map that you get from the U.S. Forest Service, and you'll just kind of look at all the little campgrounds around there, maybe call the ranger station to see what demand is like. And so there's a lot of ways to, to get campsites. They're still out there. They're still available. You just got to do your homework a little bit more. It just takes a little bit more work because of that demand. Yeah, well, there's also a supply question here. I mean, even though more and more people have been going camping in Oregon for years, we really haven't seen that much of an increase in the number of campsites that are available to the public. Why do you think there haven't been more campgrounds popping up to meet that demand? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. Um, I wrote a long story about this. Because in Oregon, I mean, the vast, vast majority of campgrounds in the state were built decades ago. Um, Oregon State Parks, which kind of runs the largest and most extensive system of campgrounds, they've only opened three new campgrounds since 1972. So that's over the last 50 years, just three new campgrounds. And that's kind of amazing, given how much the state's population has grown. The short answer on why there haven't been more built is that it's expensive and hard. You know, public campgrounds don't really make money the way that they're set up. They tend to lose money or break even at best because the state doesn't charge people the type of money that would allow them to turn a profit. And, you know, that's not really the idea of a public campground. It's kind of allowing everybody to get out and experience nature. In Oregon, camping at state parks has always been subsidized by either the gas tax a long time ago or more recently, the Oregon lottery. And without that that subsidy, Oregon almost closed 64 state parks in the 1990s. So they're just expensive. The other reason is they're just tricky. You know, people don't really want campgrounds in their backyard. State parks knows that they need more sites, especially on the Oregon coast where they have just been maxed out. And they've tried to build at least three new campgrounds over the past 15 years. And all three of them got shot down by local opposition because you're basically placing, you know, a small city in someone's backyard who already lives there. And so it's just, it's, it's tricky. Well, so it sounds like the baseline is still plan early. And if you don't manage to do that, you might be heading out a little bit further into the wilds than uh, you might expect. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, doom and gloom. I mean, if you're going to popular campgrounds like Waldo Lake or Crescent Lake or, you know, places on the Oregon coast, those are well-known places that everybody knows about and everybody wants to go to. But if you go a little farther, if you go down to like the Oregon South Coast or Southern Oregon is one of my favorite places to go into the, into the Siskiyou Mountains or out into Eastern Oregon in the Wallowa Whitman National Forest, there are fantastic campgrounds to be had. There are definitely open sites. It's just you have to travel farther. Uh, you got to do a little bit more research, but those are great places. They're still out there. All right, Zach, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Zach Ernest is the host of the Oregon Explorer podcast, and he's the outdoors editor for the Statesman Journal. So that interview was back in April, and just as predicted, Oregon is once again on a record-setting pace for camping and visits statewide, and the Oregon coast in particular. Uh, if you want to head to the beach, you will find an almighty struggle to find any campsite whatsoever. But I've got a few tips to help. On the coast, there are open campsites at Bullard's Beach State Park and Honeyman State Park over the next few weeks. Apparently some large groups have canceled, so check those out, grab them while you can. And in general, the further south that you go on the coast, the better chance you'll have to find a campground, especially midweek. 
In the mountains, uh, the Brighton Bush Corridor, so the Highway 46 area north of Detroit that just reopened, there are great dispersed campsites up there, and Humbug Campground, which just reopened, uh, was totally empty uh, on Thursday when we sent a photographer up there. I'm not sure if that's because word hasn't gotten out about this area reopening from the fires, but, but that might be an area worth checking out. I'd also encourage checking out private campgrounds. Uh, I've become kind of a late convert to a website called HipCamp, uh, which is basically an Airbnb for camping, where farmers and landowners have turned their property into campsites. The fun thing is that the campsites are often really unique. It's far from just, you know, following the A loop to a million campsites, the B loop. You know, on these private campsites, you might be in the middle of a fruit orchard, you know, putting your tent down. You might be right on top of the ocean. Um, they, some of them have more of a glamping feel to them. So they might have like a sauna next to your tent spot. And other ones, the really cheap ones, might literally be in someone's backyard in Bend. You know, because Bend is a pretty tough place to find affordable camping. You know, maybe just plunk a, a tent down in someone's backyard. That's, that is available. So it's worth searching around on there because I did that, you know, when I, I was hoping to go out to Newport and spend some time out there. Couldn't find any open campsites anywhere. I looked at a bunch of state parks, but I looked at a couple of these ones on Hip Camp and there were a few that were open. So it is worth looking at a few non-traditional options. All right, we're going to take one more break to hear from our sponsors. Before jumping into the best backpacking trips in Southern Oregon and Northern California, also known as the state of Jefferson. So that's when we come back. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. If you enjoy hiking the trails of the Tillamook Coast, consider becoming active in their care. By acting as a steward to our beautiful natural spaces, you're investing in their future health and sustainability. There are many different ways to be a good steward. Pack out everything you pack in. Stay on marked trails. Park only in designated parking areas at trailheads, pick up after your dogs, and take home nothing but photos. If you want to take on a larger stewardship role, there are several local conservation groups who could use your volunteer power on a number of projects. To identify an organization to volunteer with, email danhag at tillamookcoast.com. Once again, that's Dan Hag. He's your contact, and his email is dan, D-A-N, at Tillamook Coast, which is all one word, dot com. Okay, so this next conversation is from a podcast that I recorded last year when I interviewed extreme ultra runner Ryan Gelfi about the art of fast packing, which is basically backpacking just sped up and the ways you can do that. So you can listen to that entire interview in our archives. It's very easy to find. But at the tail end of that podcast, Ryan and I both talked about our favorite backpacking spots in Southern Oregon and Northern California. You know, we picked places just both south and north of the border and even right on top of the actual border. Now, I can't say for sure whether this will be the best year for these kind of trips, especially with some of the fires down there right now. But you know, if the smoke is clear, the wildfires calm down, you know, I love these places. They're hundred percent worth visiting, whether that is this year, whether it's next spring or whenever. So hopefully you enjoy. All right. Welcome back. 
In the second half, Ryan and I are going to pick five of our favorite backcountry spots in the wilderness areas of Southwest Oregon and Northern California. Now, if you've never been down to this magic land, you are missing out. The Klamath-Siskiyou Mountains are an amazing place of clear rivers, unique geology, and just these waves of green mountains that seem to go on forever. It's the place where I got my start in outdoor journalism, and I still dream about it every night. But Ryan, what do you love most about this area? And why did you pick it to start this fast packing business? Like, why is this the best destination for it? Uh, well, so I grew up in Redding, California, which is like, I guess you could say on the southern edge of like the Klamath-Siskiyou region. And now I live in Ashland, Oregon now, which is two hours to the north, right in the heart of this Klamath-Siskiyou region. So, I mean, one really good reason is that I would consider myself fairly well expert in all the wilderness areas of this region. And I'm not, I don't have to travel 12 hours to go <laughs> do our trips. Like I, I can recon these trips. I can know everything about them. And why is, should anyone come here is an interesting question. You could say, why don't just go to the Sierra Nevada? Like they're amazing. It's sunny and there's all this granite. And I think that for two reasons, this uh, area is amazing is one, it's more prim, it's more remote. It's more primitive. There's certainly less people overall so if you want to have like a really amazing wilderness experience i mean there's no better place than the klamath siskiyou region at least on the west coast of america it's it's uh it is tremendous and then like they're just amazingly jagged rough mountains with everything you'd want like clear high mountain lakes like you're saying amazingly clear water quality and all of like the rivers coming out of the klamath mountains um and there's just hundreds and hundreds of miles of trail it's endless like uh, the routes we'll do with my trips are like just touching the tip of the iceberg of what you can do down here. I think that's my favorite thing about this area too, is just that rugged remote feeling. Like I know that a lot of places in the Pacific Northwest and the West coast like to claim Bigfoot, but I feel like, <laughs> like if Bigfoot does walk the earth, like this is, this is where he's hanging out because you can actually hide out there. Like you can really get away from people in a way that I don't think you can in, like you were saying, the Sierras or up here, like in, you know, the Cascade Range, the Three mm -hmm. Sisters, Mount Jefferson. I mean, those areas are so crowded now that you need this, you know, pretty exotic permit system to get anywhere anymore. But, you know, head down to this area and, you know, you can get away from people in a really really good way so okay so the plan is that each of us are going to pick five of our favorite backcountry spots in these wilderness areas um so i'm going to get us started um i'm going to pick a place that's special to me so my first pick is going to be raspberry lake and preston peak and that is in the siskiyou wilderness this is reached just south of Cave Junction and right off Redwood Highway 199. It's pretty darn close to being on the border of the two states. So Raspberry Lake is the place that made me fall in love with the Klamath-Siskiyou Mountains. It's this little turquoise pool wrapped in steep, steep silver mountains. It's about six miles into the backcountry with some pretty good rainbow and brook trout, trout fishing. So the fishing's pretty good there. Um, I actually invented a sport called log rolling fishing there where you go out on a log and try to catch a trout. There's a video of me doing this. Anyway, so as much fun as, as it is to camp at the lake, it's even more fun to scramble up the mountains and then make your way up to Preston Peak, um, which is 7,300 feet tall. It's the second tallest mountain in the Siskiyou Range behind just Mount Ashland. But Preston Peak just feels so much bigger um, because it's you know way above everything else around it. It's real remote and way back there. 
And from the top, you can see everything. Like you can just see this huge expanse. You can see all the way out to the ocean. Um, and so the combination of those two places, like the little mountain lake and then this great mountain climb, you know, that isn't, it's not technical, but you know, it's just off trail scrambling. Uh, yeah, Siskiyou Wilderness, Raspberry Lake, Preston Peak. Those are uh, pretty special places for me. Uh, have you been to either one of those? Yeah, oh, definitely. I uh, I did a quick little one night fast pack trip in the Siskiyou. Uh, anyway, I guess I've been there a few times. I, I was going to do Preston. Like I got into Raspberry, kind of came from an off trail route and I was, I just ran out of time. I looked up and I was like, ah, oh, there's no way I'm getting back in time if I go up Preston. So that's like <laughs> one of my, I wouldn't say regret. It's one of the things on my short list for sure, because Preston's like the most compelling peak in all of the Siskiyou range. No doubt about it. It has the most relief. It's unbelievably steep. It holds snow super late into the year on its big north face uh yeah it's amazing <laughs> one cool thing about preston peak and i learned this when i was a, a journalist down there is that it's actually still being uplifted so it mm. actually rises like a few centimeters per year or something like that because the geology of that area the tectonic plates are still pushing it upward so you can say that like you can come back every year and say you've climbed it slightly <laughs> taller than it was before so anyway uh, what's uh, what's your first pick all right so i'll do for my first pick I'll pick the Caribou Lakes Basin, which is in the central Trinity Alps wilderness. It's like the Trinity Alps are kind of a little further south into California, um, quite close to like Weaverville or, yeah, Weaverville is like your jump off point from the south. Anyhow, um, yeah, so the Caribou Lakes are it's probably the most popular place I'll talk about. It is fairly popular, but you have to take an hour drive up mostly dirt road to get to the traditional trailhead up at a place called big flat and then the climb up to the lakes themselves it's about a three thousand foot climb uh, there's two different trails there's an old caribou trail and a new one the new one's more graded and has more switchbacks the old one is amazing like you go straight from five thousand feet up to eight thousand feet up on the shoulder uh with like unadulterated views into the interior of the trinity alps and then you look down into this caribou basin where the lakes like the biggest of them is quite large i would say it's got to be at least three quarters of a mile across and just the best color of blue i've ever seen you know like eh, i don't know it's the kind of place dreams are made of and yeah. so yeah, it's about 10 miles give or take to get into the lakes from the the closest trailhead so it's, it's a good it's not close um but it is popular like for the reason that it is just so stunning yeah that's the the one place that i, I got to before before i left uh living down there um that was the the one lake that i made it into and you're not kidding man like the color and the the contrast to the color of the mountains like yes. it just it pops like if you take a picture of it it just like pops off the screen because it's like the silver mountains and this like very turquoise like beautiful water um man it's it's really something yeah you don't have to be a good photographer to get good pictures at that place <laughs> cool all right well i'm gonna jump into my second pick and my second pick is in the red buttes wilderness and is azalea lake and this just encapsulates this idea of combining oregon and california because the cool thing is that you actually start on the Oregon side of the border and then you cross into California on the trail and make your way to this across this sweeping valley called Phantom Meadows over a big ridge line and then down to Azalea Lake, which in California, you start in Oregon. There's some halfway decent fishing at Azalea Lake, although it's it's kind of shallow. Um, I have two goofy stories about this place. When I was young and stupid, I, I hauled a pretty large inflatable kayak like all the way into the <laughs> lake so that i could fish from it 
and that that worked only moderately well. It definitely was not worth the pain um, of climbing, you know, about 2000 feet, I think, of elevation climb, and then mm -hmm. six miles. Um, and then the second was that, like, it, once you get to Azalea Lake, it's a cool place to backpack. Um, very nice. Um, there's another lake nearby called Lonesome Lake. And on my way to Lonesome Lake about 10 years ago, wasn't paying super close attention. The trails weren't in great shape at that point. And I got pretty seriously lost for about 35 minutes, um, you know, deep in the Red Buttes wilderness. There's just nobody out there. I was by myself. Um, I was just like, oh, man, like if they have to send out search and rescue, like my career as an outdoor journalist is like just finished. Um, but yeah, it was about as lost as I've, I've ever been. But eventually used the compass to find my way north and, and connected with one of the trails. But uh, anyway, if you want to get lost, uh, the Red Buttes is a pretty good place to do it. And Azalea is a great lake to get started. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I love that piece of country, too. It's uh, the trails are a little better now, I think, than they were 10 years ago, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. And there's different ways to get in there. Have you ever been down into Phantom Meadows? It's always looked like a cool place to explore in the bottom, but the, the trail always takes you like right across the top. Uh, I don't think I have. This would be like to the west, I'm thinking, of Azalea. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just, yeah, it is to the West. It's just that big meadow that you go across. It's no. got this huge, like glacial, like valley in there. Yeah. I've always thought it'd be fun to get down in there. I've always come in from the other side to Azalea, like along the boundary trail. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's amazing country. Definitely seen fires, but even you know, people will say, oh, it burned. I'm not going to go back there, but I'll tell you the fires have not ruined that place uh, at all. I think it's, it's still just as aesthetic as ever. Yeah, that's one thing I got to remember when I talk about this. I wrote a, a guidebook about hiking in this area, but it was like over 10 years ago now. And so some of my some of my information feels a little bit out of date, so it might not look exactly the way it does now. Anyway, well, let's uh, let's move on to your second pick. What you got? All right. So I try to pick some places that maybe not everybody has heard of or been. And I mean, maybe people have probably heard of this, but I'm going to pick the Chetco River within the Calmeopsis Wilderness. It's not really a point, but it is... Uh, so if you haven't been to the Calmeopsis, you're probably not alone. It's not super well-traveled. It's to the west of like Cave Junction in Selma, so like southwest Oregon. And it's quite a large wilderness. It's 180,000 acres, uh, and it's been really ravaged by fire, worse than anywhere else I've ever been in my life. <laughs> the fires have been really devastating. And, you know, it used to have big stands of old growth, and now there's just tiny little pockets left, and the rest is quite burned. Um, but when you go down into the Chetco, it takes, uh, the short way is maybe four or five miles. And then there's another, another trail that's more like 10, depending on which way you want to go. Um, so you, you start out quite high, like up on the ridge line around four or four and a half thousand feet. And then the trails drop way down into the drainage, which is like just over a thousand. So it's pretty big, rugged drop, you know, tough trails, but, um, the color of the water in the Chetco, I think that was, it was, just one of the most mind blowing things to be in this unbelievably scarred and burned landscape. And then to see the most opalescent blue, uh, just untamed river that I've ever been to. And, you know, it's fully encompassed within the wilderness boundary. So there's not like current, you know, logging operations or mines or any sort of, uh, human impact within like its entirety in, in the upper reaches of the Chetco. So it's, uh, it's a river that you have to go to at least once in your life. I think if you're, if you love that kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like the Chetco might be like if you were going to pick the most remote river in the western United States, like the Chetco would have a pretty strong case just based on like 
how far it is out there and like everything you have to do to get down to that upper Chetco river. Um, man, that's, uh, yes. and, and when you're in there, like you're, you're in there, like you are in raw remote wilderness. Um, I know a lot of a handful of people, not a lot of people will actually bring boats down and, uh, float that upper area. And you go through a Canyon called like the magic Canyon and, you know, it's it's about as good as good as it gets. I'd like to do that. I, I mean, I need to buy a pack raft before too long. I yeah, being being able to paddle that river would be a, a dream. And I should probably mention um, he'll kill us if we don't mention it um, at this point. But uh, the Siskiyou Mountain Club, which I know that you're involved with, um, has has been instrumental in maintaining the trails in the Kalamiopsis because. You know, not only were they hammered by the Biscuit Fire back in 2002, but the Chetco Bar in 2017 mm-hmm. and the Klondike Lake. These trails would have disappeared without the work of our buddy Gabe Howe and the Siskiyou Mountain Club. So important to give them a shout out. <laughs> Big time. I think I think it's not that they would have disappeared. I think it's that they basically had disappeared. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's tremendous. Yeah, I, it's one of my greatest uh, the greatest things I'm involved with is being able to just be a small part of like making it so people can get back in there at now, right? Like it's, we haven't lost it. So I think it's tr- tremendous. Yeah. And I mean, you know, if you, if you live up in Northwest Oregon and you want to like really get off the beaten path, but still be rewarded with some cool stuff, you know, the Calmiopsis, it's about as rugged as it gets out there. Yes. And you don't need a permit. <laughs> you don't need, definitely don't need a permit. Um, all right. So uh, my third pick here, I'm going to pick the sky high lakes and the marble rim in the Martin, in the marble mountain wilderness. And for me, this is the real centerpiece of, of the Klamath Siskiyou. This is like the showstopper wilderness of this area that just brings everything that's amazing about the Klamath Siskiyou kind of into one place. You know, there's alpine lakes, wildflower meadows, really rare species of trees and very biodiverse area. It just has all the things that you can love and was actually one of the original wilderness areas protected in 1964. The places I'm picking are fairly obvious, and they're kind of the more famous of the area, the Sky High Lakes, and then Marble Mountain itself, which is sometimes called Marble Rim. But it just the, the Marble Rim has this amazing pearl white crown of a mountain that just sits atop this kind of lush wilderness. And the amazing thing about the Marble Mountains is the geology. So it's millions of years ago, this was a shallow ocean, and then volcanic upheaval brought it up and formed these mountains. But you'll actually see, like... Um, fossils of ancient like sea creatures like at the tops of mountains which is really bizarre and again it's just pretty cool the sky high lakes themselves are just our cool collection of alpine lakes below craggy mountains um i suspect again that this area has gotten a lot more crowded since my time um since this is kind of an obvious destination but you know go in there midweek and then explore the whole area like the marble rim and yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I assume you've been to the marble the marbles quite a bit. Yeah, it is. It's pretty close to where I live right now up on like Siskiyou Summit. And to get to that trailhead, it takes me like an hour and fifteen minutes, maybe. Uh, that yeah, the marble rim is tremendous, and uh, you know the the marble mountains in their entirety. It's like it's another one of these places where you could do, you know, if the trails are in decent shape, which they aren't all, but you know you can do a hundred mile loop without even trying to make it up like it's just it's huge it's three hundred thousand acres almost and uh has more lakes even than the trinity i'm trinity ops are well known for all its lakes but the marbles actually have more so i'm curious about like have have the marbles become because when i went there like they were known but they Mm -hmm. weren't that well known like you were alone a lot of the time and you'd see a few other backpackers but it wasn't that crowded has it has that area seen a big uptick in use like you've seen in other places i would imagine that 
it has seen a big uptick on a percentage basis. I would still say that, you know, every time I go there, it, it still very much feels like a wilderness experience and certainly nothing like a theme park and there's people, but I, I don't think it's, it, it doesn't take away from the experience at this point. Although, you know, in the future, you know, like all these places that these really amazing places, they're going to eventually have to limit how many people can go there and have permit systems and stuff. And I think we're still quite a number of years out from that uh, yep. down here. Gotcha. Well, that's, that's good to hear. Um, all right. So what do you got for your third pick? All right. So, I, it's so hard to pick five. You're like, pick five. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be tough. So I try, I'm picking, again, places I think that I think are just tremendous that maybe people haven't been. So this one is called the uh, the Boundary Trail in the Southern Siskiyou Wilderness. So the Siskiyou Wilderness, which you talked about, Preston and, and Raspberry Lake, which are on the farther north end of the Siskiyou Wilderness. Um, so what's cool about the Siskiyou Wilderness is it's about 50 miles end-to-end uh, uninterrupted wilderness you know, no roads. Um, so it's quite large. It's 180,000 acres. And on the very Southern end, it's seen very, very little people, uh, hiking very few, very few backpackers. Mostly the trails have not been great and they have improved recently thanks to our friend Gabe and many, many others. But, um, the Southern boundary trail, it's, you know, it's just a piece of trail. It's all on high ridges between you know, 45 and 5,500 feet, you can see to the ocean and it's quite close to that coast actually. Um, and it's just unbelievably rugged and you get the, that feeling of vastness is just overwhelming on, on that trail. And it's, it's super primitive. It's not like this is a buttery groom trail. Like you still have to kind of look for Karens and it's not all, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's very much a trail, but it's not, um, it, it doesn't feel like this place has been used very much. And I had the privilege of taking like this group of maybe seven or eight people. And we did a trans Siskiyou run. This was a one day run where we got van supported and got dropped off in the North end and went all the way to the to basically clear to the South end. And this boundary trail was the last stretch. And, uh, you know, it's like, I'm like, Oh, 10 miles. That part was only 10 miles. I was doing all the math. I'm like, this should work out. <laughs> and it turns out, you know, uh, it was very, very hard trail. And the last people finished around one in the morning, all in high spirits. <laughs> they were actually all really psyched about it, but, uh, it's a super tough trail. <laughs> yeah. I, I love what you mentioned about, you know, still needing to look for like Karens and stuff like that. Cause that, that brings me back to my time exploring this part of, uh, these wilderness trails. Some of them, they're so hard to see and you can just get lost. Like if you miss like a few markers or like the trail just disappear on you. So they back. but man, you feel like you're out there. The boundary trail is, is a very cool one. Um, all right. So for my fourth pick, um, I am going to head to the Calmeopsis wilderness and I had trouble picking one. I was going to go with Vulcan Lake, which I thought about for a little bit, which is this amazing Alpine lake that really feels like you're on a on a different planet. It's just this burnt orange rock and then this bright turquoise lake. But it's also a really short, pretty easy place to get to. So I think my official pick has to be the Illinois River Trail. And this is, you know, a 28 mile, very rugged route that ostensibly follows the Illinois River, which is one of the wildest rivers on the West Coast, but the trail goes all over the place, like high up very, very high mountains and then down. And in a few places you get along the the river uh, at a place called Pine Flat, which is one of my favorite places to just backpack into for like, you know, one night and and really feel like you're getting out there 
Um, there's, you know, places you can swim or you can fish for uh, winter steelhead and stuff like that. But yeah, the Illinois River Trail, it just brings you up mountains and then back down and past like amazing tributaries like the Indigo uh, Creek and Silver Creek. There's just an amazing array of things to see on the Illinois River Trail it makes a great backpacking trip. The thing that's probably most famous for is rare wildflowers. So the Calamiopsis leachiana, for which the, uh, the wilderness derives its name from, is fine here. It's this little cute little uh, pink plant that isn't really stick out until you kind of look at it more closely. And it's, it's really beautiful. It blooms in the spring. Uh, there's a lot of famous uh, Darlingtonia or the, the cobra lilies. So these are the insect eating plants that uh, kind of curl up and just look, look like a cobra and these like fens along the trail. And so they're pretty cool. So if you're into rare plants and you want to get away and you want to see some really wild rivers, it's pretty tough to go wrong with the Illinois river trail. It's definitely one of my favorite backpacking experiences. Like, overall bar none that's awesome i'm i'm going out there in a few weeks to i'm putting on just a little impromptu it's like a 20 mile sort of lollipop loop run with maybe five or ten people and we're so we're going to go to pine flat and then up this florence way trail and back down the illinois river trail so i'm real excited to uh start dipping my toes into that northern end of the calmiopsis Boy, when you go up the Florence Way, you, I, I mean, you're, you're in amazing shape. So you're in better shape than I was. I was hauling one of those 50 pound packs oh, up the Florence Way. Yes. And, and <laughs> so there's no shade either um, because, you know, a lot of this area uh, burned it. I should mention this was, you know, heavily impacted by the various wildfires, mm-hmm. but I just got, I just got baked. Like by the time I got up to the little spring at the top, I was just like, oh man, I'm, like th- this trail won. Like I did not win. That. <laughs> it's. Um, yeah. I think it's about three thousand foot climb in three miles. It's br- yeah. It's, it's totally brutal. So steep. Um. Also, I mean, for those who are interested in you know the history uh, of the area, that area, that Florence Way area, is um, where the Biscuit Fire originally started. So it was originally the Florence Fire, and that's that area is right where it started. Wow. So um, you know, it became a five hundred thousand acre fire, but that's that's where it got its where it starts. Mm. So kind of maybe an infamous spot too. <laughs> right. Well, I didn't know that. That's pretty, that is pretty cool to know. Uh, all right. So we are on to your fourth pick, correct? Number four. So I'm going to talk about a place uh, near and dear to my heart. I mean, might not think of it as a wilderness, but Mount Shasta actually is mostly encompassed by wilderness. You know, the big 14,000 foot Alpine volcano in far Northern California. So if you'd climb it, like people often do from the southwest side, uh, it's very busy. It's in the wilderness technically, but there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people on a weekend all going up Avalanche Gulch, um, which is great. I mean, I it's a I love climbing that route as well. So <laughs> if you want a wilderness experience on the mountain, um, and actually probably the easiest way to climb the summit if you wanted to, it's on this uh, a route called Clear Creek on the southeast side. So you drive around through McLeod and then up some dirt roads around to the east. And uh, I think my favorite part about the Clear Creek side of Mount Shasta is you hike in on a trail, you're in the woods initially, and then at about 9,000 feet, you kick into the, you know, above tree line into the Alpine. And there's this water that just comes right up out of the mountain. And it's it, it creates this creek that just bubbles up out of nowhere. And within like a foot and a half or two feet of the banks of this creek, that's just lush green meadow surrounded by volcanic rock nothing else is growing particularly except right along this you know spring-fed creek and so people will camp nearby there that's often like a base camp for people to climb the rest of the way which actually is not very 
technical people do it in you know hiking boots and you don't actually need crampons and ice axe so uh even just i've taken my my little kids will go backpacking and we'll just go to that clear creek camp at nine thousand feet and it's one of my favorite places anywhere wow that sounds fantastic i mean mount shasta as far as like really scenic mountains man it's really hard to beat mount shasta like um so i'm curious about this area like how can you drive all the way up to like a trailhead that accesses it mm -hmm. fairly you said you did it with your kids so oh, yeah. it can't be that hard oh this is super easy to get to and this is uh yeah i mean you don't the, the road's not super good but i mean a passenger cars do it all the time you know it's maybe 10 miles on dirt road the trailhead's at seven thousand feet and to hike in on it's a very good trail to go from that seven thousand foot trailhead to that nine thousand foot camp i was talking about it's like mm -hmm. two and a half or three miles one way Man, that's fantastic. So yeah, you don't have to climb the mountain at all. You know, like that's a super worthy, like the views camping there is tremendous. I think you have to have some guidelines on your tent, like winds can kick up. Like you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to be caught without a little bit more of a, a sturdy sort of tent or just sleep, you know, if you can just sleep out too, but like the winds can kick up at any time. Very cool. Well, I'm putting, I'm putting that one on the list for sure. I need to get back down to the uh, Mount Shasta area. That, that's, that's an incredible area. All right, so I'm going to take us home here. This is my fifth and final pick. And man, like you were saying, like just picking five was really difficult. And I almost hate to pick this one just because I love it so much. And I, I almost <laughs> hate to put it out there more than I have to. But like if we're talking about this area, I can't not mention it. So my final pick is going to take us back to the Siskiyou Wilderness uh, to a place that's very close to my heart. And it is called Devil's Punch Bowl. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because there is a similarly unique place on the Oregon coast that we've actually talked about on this podcast before. But if you're going to have a contest between the two Devil's Punch Bowls, um, this place wins hands down. It's basically an alpine lake that it almost feels like it's been like scooped out of the mountains. Like if you had an ice cream scoop and then you saw a full mountain range and just like scooped out a little spot, um, that's Devil's Punch Bowl. It's just this little emerald spot and it's just surrounded by these you know silver cliffs on all sides it's just this giant rock cathedral that you have to rock walk into and hike into to find it again i think the crowds have uh gotten bigger since i was here um and it's not an ideal place to camp like there's no firewood there's only a few spots but you know it's if you want to get down there and see something really scenic um and be you know leave no trace um Devil's Punch Bowl is such an amazing place. One of my favorite stories, I actually, back in the day, I did put a tent on the shore. And so I went to sleep that night. And all of a sudden, it seemed like somebody like turned on the lights. Like I'm outdoors in the wilderness. And it was this bright light all of a sudden came on. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I got out and there was just this crazy eerie light over everything. And what had happened was the moon was full. Moonlight bounced off all that bare rock so much so that it, it like the whole area was almost glowing and it was just this really surreal experience because you have the ink black lake and then this eerie like silver light over just everything and um anyway so devil's punch bowl Siski wilderness not an easy trip uh fairly steep but also not that hard to get there and um yeah i have you, you must have been to devil's punch bowl yeah yeah i have i think you know like you're talking about the crowds and stuff you know so one it, it, one way you could do it is if you, if you had some time, you know, hiking in from like the Clear Creek Trail so you could start somewhere else and camp along this amazing 
Creek. I'm sure there's good fishing in Clear Creek. I don't. I think it's pretty unobstructed to the Klamath. Anyways, you could do a day hike up to Devil's Punchbowl very easily. Or I shouldn't say easily, but it's not very far from that Clear Creek. So if you want to avoid crowds, at least at this point, it's a lot less crowded camping down on Clear Creek and then hiking into Devil's Punchbowl than trying to go straight there and camp. Yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Like if you're going to make it part of a trip, that's definitely the way to do it. Um, mm -hmm. It's doable in like a, a day trip too. I think you know, oh, yeah. it's, like, it's only like 10, 10 miles out and back or something mm -hmm. like that. That's right. It's actually, you know, it, I'm, again, I'm dating myself, but the first time I went up there, I think was with the old trail, which dropped down much lower and made for a much steeper climb up to the top. Right. Um, the newer trail is quite a bit easier, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so where, where, all right, take us home. Uh, we got one, <laughs> one, one pick more. left. What you got? So again, I'm not going to stick with my, you know, I'm not just going to hit you with more Trinity Alps or Marble Mountains. These are places that like are more popular and, uh, they're tremendous, but this place that our, my fifth one is going to be in the South Warner wilderness, which is basically in the exact far Northeast corner of California, essentially on the Nevada border. Um, this Warner, this South Warner mountains, uh, they're actually quite high. They top out almost at 10,000 feet. It's much more like in that fault block sort of, uh, desert basin range, uh, paradigm. So more, and there, there's more Aspens. There's, uh, it's more high desert, but, the when you get up into the higher altitudes the it, it's just a tremendously beautiful place the views are endless i mean there's still forest but it's very open and then uh so i'm gonna pick this place called patterson lake which i only have ever been to once you know it's a little bit of a drive it's maybe three and a half or four hours from where i live to get out to this trailhead um but it sits right below the highest peak in the south warners and it's just this like on the west side, it slopes gradually, right? Like the Sierras do, like a lot of mountain ranges do. It's gradual, gradual. And then the east side of the South Warners, it think, it, the whole range, it just drops off in these multiple thousands of feet cliffs stacked on top of each other. And there's there's this Patterson Lake. It's just this amazing color of blue perched quite, quite near the top. And it's very big. And you wouldn't think, hey, I'm in essentially this high desert. You don't picture those lakes being out there. And there there's some, this is one that's a real gem. And I'm sure people go there, but I think it's pretty lightly traveled still. Gotcha. What is the closest town there? So like, hmm. if you were going to go there, like what, what, what region are we talking about? Right. Uh, if you've ever heard of a town called Alturas, that's the closest town or to the North Lakeview, Oregon is maybe an hour to the North hour and a half to the North. Gotcha. So it's re you really have that like kind of high desert feel out there. Uh huh. It is. It's, to me, it's total diamond in the rough. I've done some backcountry ski trips out there. I mean, it's just a place no one go, thinks to go. But for trails and backcountry, you know, trips, it's uh, it's pretty rad. I'm gonna I'm gonna hopefully have a permit to do some guided fast packing trips out there. If not this year, then next. Well, very cool. That's that's actually a great way to end the podcast with this place that I've never even heard of. Um, so. Um, I appreciate you taking some time to uh, talk through the idea of fast packing, what it brings to the table and the business that you are going to offer this coming summer. Um, and then talk about my favorite place on earth, the Southern Oregon and Northern California wilderness areas. So thanks so much for taking the time, man. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. This is super fun. I, uh, I like you. I, I can talk about this stuff forever. So uh, hopefully you can get back down here soon. All right. Sounds like a plan. Take it easy. Thanks. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. 
If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. For our environment, for our economy, and for the future, learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.